You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Pursuit of Happiness, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, moms, we want you to know that we're thankful for you. You know, that's something that all of us have in common, is that we all have had a mother. And so, moms, we want you to know that we honor you today and we love you. And we appreciate you very much. If you please open with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians. That's where we're going to be. This morning, we are starting a new series. The new series is titled The Pursuit of Happiness. And in this series, we're going to be studying Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's a letter which was written in very dark circumstances, but yet it bursts forth with joy and hope. And as we study this book, we're going to be discovering the keys to finding the happiness we desire and the joy which we were made for. So would you please bow your heads with me and we'll pray as we open up God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, that we have in you a source of joy that is indefatigable. Lord, it is, uh, it is indestructible. Lord, we never reach the end of it. it. It's bigger than our circumstances. And we pray that this morning as we talk about the gospel, as we study this reason that Paul had for joy, even in the midst of all the circumstances he was facing, Lord, we pray that you would also help us to have that same joy, that you would show us where that source of joy is and how we can have it as well. Lord, we pray that in you our joy would be complete, that it would be full. And Lord, we pray that this place would be characterized by people who know you and, and know that deep inner happiness, that joy which can only come through knowing you. So Lord, we pray that you'd bless this study as we get started. We pray you bless our time in the word. Give us ears to hear what you would speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So my wife and I recently became parents for the fourth time, which, uh, you know, people, people always get really excited when you tell them that, hey, we just became parents. But then when you add that part about, oh, that it's like for the fourth time, they're like, oh, oh, I guess that's one way to live your life, right? You know, that's Something that some people do. Um, so my wife and I, right, my wife became a mother again. Having a, we had a baby girl in December. And having this little baby in the house has been really good. Uh, it, you know, the baby cries sometimes. And we all know that that's just what babies do. They cry. And you get used to it. As a parent, you get used to a lot of crying in the house. And after a while, it, you know, you can kind of just, it doesn't really bother you anymore. Um, But recently, the baby started doing something else. In addition to crying, she also started smiling. And even more recently, she started laughing. And you know what's a really interesting thing is this. When the baby cries, nobody really reacts, right? These babies cry. That's just what they do. We pick her up. We calm her down. But it doesn't phase us. We don't stop what we're doing because the baby's crying. I mean, somebody picks her up and calms her down. But everybody just kind of keeps on doing what they're doing because we understand that crying is natural. It's normal. It's just something that babies do. But here's the thing. When the baby smiles, when the baby smiles, that's different. When the baby smiles, everybody stops what they're doing. And wherever they're at in the house, they all come together to where the baby's at. And we gather around to watch the baby smile and time just kind of stops. And when the baby laughs, you know what? It's an event, right? It's an event. We yell at each other, hey, the baby's laughing. People will start running over. We get out our phones. We take videos. We post it online. We, we text it to people. Uh, I mean, uh, now why is that? Isn't laughing just as natural for a baby as crying is? I mean, in a way, yes. So then why does laughter and smiling affect us this way, whereas crying doesn't? 
And, and I think it's not just limited to when they're babies. It's true as they get bigger as well. And the reason is very simple. The reason is this, is this, because this is what every parent desires for their children. They desire that their children would be happy. This is every mother's wish, that their child would be happy. If you ask parents, what do you wish for your children? What do you want for your children? And they might say things like, I want my children to be polite. I want my children to be respectful. I want my children to grow up and be successful. I want them to be confident. I want them to stay out of trouble. I want them to make good choices. But why? Why those things? What is the point of each and every one of those things? Here's the point. You want them to be happy. And you believe that those things will result in greater happiness for them. Now, it's not just what we want for our kids, it's also what we desire for ourselves. The title of today's message is, Every Mother's Wish, Every Heart's Desire. Now, what am I referring to? What I'm referring to is happiness. This is the great theme of Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's happiness. This letter is known as the epistle of joy because in this relatively short letter, Paul uses the word joy 18 times in different forms. They say that one of the... um, you know, one of the characteristics of a good teacher is repetition. Let me say that again. When it, no, all right, so um, when you consider the circumstances that this letter was written in, it's all the more surprising that this is a letter characterized by deep, profound happiness. Now, we have, uh, we have before us, what we have as we open Paul's letters to the Philippians, what we have is a letter written from jail. In our our previous study, which we completed last week in the book of Acts, we saw how Paul ended up here in jail. He is in Rome. He is accused of a capital offense, and he is awaiting trial before Caesar. Paul had been arrested. He had been imprisoned because of his Christian faith, and he had appealed his case to the highest court in the land, which was Caesar Nero himself. And what that means is this, that one day, as Paul's now waiting for his number to come up before Caesar, one day his number is going to come up, his case will be presented to Caesar, and as the highest court in the land, Caesar will render the final judgment. And what that means is that one day there will be no more further appeals. There will be a case, and a judgment will be rendered, and that will be it. There's a chance that Caesar will set him free, but there's also a chance that he will be found guilty. And if he is found guilty, he will be executed. It all kind of depends on what mood Caesar is in on that given day, and that's something that he has no way to predict or influence. Furthermore, Paul was chained during this time every day, 24 hours a day, to Roman guards, and they would be changed out on six-hour shifts. Now what that means is that Paul couldn't go to the bathroom in privacy. He couldn't sleep in privacy. Anyone who came to visit him, they could never have a really private conversation. This was a demeaning, this was a demoralizing situation that he was in. Plus, the focus of Paul's life up until this point has been planting churches, being a missionary, being a pastor. And now he's not able to do that anymore. He's locked in this room, chained to guards, unable to do what he loves to do, what he feels called to do, what he's good at doing. And there's a chance that he could lose his life. And he never knows, is today going to be the day when they call his name and drag him before Caesar? Who knows? 
I mean, it could be tomorrow, it could be a year from now, it could be two years from now. He doesn't know. And you can imagine this anticipation, this uncertainty that he's living with. It caused so much stress on a person, not knowing if today's the day or if you're going to be waiting for much longer or if when you're done waiting, if you're going to live or you're going to die. You don't know. And yet, in spite of these extremely dark circumstances, it is triumph rather than despair which comes forth in this letter. It's faith and not fear which characterizes Paul's tone. Now, how is that possible? It's possible because Paul had something as a Christian which was for him a source of joy and true happiness, which wasn't based on his circumstances. It was something based outside of his circumstances. And so no matter what happened to him, that thing which was the source of his joy wasn't affected. It didn't change. And so the question is, what was this thing that Paul had? And secondly, how can we have it too? What was the thing that Paul had and how can we have it too? The Declaration of Independence contains this very famous phrase. It says this, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. See, the founders of this country recognize that this is something that is fundamental, that is central to all human beings. We long, we desire, we strive to be happy. Everything we do, in fact, in one way or another, is a pursuit of happiness. Do you realize that? That everything you do is, in one way or another, a pursuit of happiness. Happiness, in its truest, deepest sense, is what all people are ultimately seeking, including you and including me. You want to be happy, and so do I. If you really think about it, again, everything you do is driven by this desire the desire to be happy. Why do people get married? Why do people choose certain careers and not other careers? Why do people have children? Why do they do the things they do? Ultimately, the reason why we do the things we do is because we are pursuing happiness. We want to be happy. And we believe that those things, those choices, will help us to attain that. And I want you to understand, that is not a bad thing. And it is not a shallow thing. In fact, it's a good thing. In fact, it's what we were made for. It's God's desire for us. It is the reason why Jesus came into the world, so that through him, this deep, true, ultimate happiness that all of us long for could be our ultimate destiny. Augustine, St. Augustine put it this way, every person, whatever their condition, desires to be happy. Blaise Pascal, he's a famous philosopher and mathematician. He actually was the person who created the first ever calculator abacus type of thing. He said this, All people seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they always tend toward this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different means. What that means is this. The person who goes to war and the person who doesn't go to war are both motivated by the same desire, the desire for happiness. Some people wouldn't be happy if they didn't go and fight uh, in a war on behalf of their country. There are others who, in the name of happiness, are trying to avoid going to war, but both are motivated by the same thing, the desire for happiness. He goes on and says something even more radical. Listen to this. The will never takes the least step but to this object. The object is happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man 
even of those who hang themselves. That's interesting, right? Now, what he's saying is this, that even when people attempt suicide or even commit suicide, even that is motivated, although misguidedly, it is motivated by the pursuit of happiness. It's misguided, but even that is the pursuit of happiness because they hope that by committing suicide, they can escape unhappiness in this life, and maybe they hope that they'll end up somewhere where they are happier than here. See, everyone, everything we do is driven in one way or another by the desire for happiness, the pursuit of happiness, even things like going to war and even extreme things like suicide. Richard Hibbs, who was one of the Puritans, he said this, Happiness is the desire of all people. It is, a, it is a desire grafted into the heart of every person and it is the center of all the searchings of our hearts and the turnings of our lives. Think about this. Even people who are into self-denial, the, the reason they are into self-denial is because they believe that their self-denial will lead them to greater happiness, that they will be happier in the long run if they deny themselves certain pleasures in the moment. Like athletes, you think about runners, people who are disciplined and studying or working. They sacrifice momentary pleasures because of the promise, because of the hope of something which will give them greater happiness. For example, I really like donuts. In fact, I would go so far as to say, donuts make me happy. But I believe that I will be happier in the end, if I don't eat donuts. You see, the pursuit of happiness is what drives some people to eat donuts, and it's what drives me not to eat donuts. It's the same, same desire, the desire for happiness. Even actions of self-denial are driven by the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Martin, or Manton, I'm sorry, also a Puritan, said this, All people naturally desire happiness, but we do not often make a right choice of the means that may bring us the happiness we desire. I want you to pay attention to that one because that is key. We all desire happiness, but we often don't make the right choices of the means which may bring us the happiness we desire. See, this is the problem. This is where sin comes into the equation. Sin is looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Sadly, many people pursue happiness in ways that are misguided, in ways which will ultimately and sadly fail them and that will result in misery and even destroy them completely. I think this is an important thing for us to keep in mind because it's really easy for some people to say, you know, you look at people who do certain things and you just write them off and you say, well, of course they do those things. They're just terrible, wretched sinners. But I want you to see this. Even people who are doing things which are destructive and harmful to themselves or even to other people, ultimately they are seeking after things which are actually good, but they are doing it in bad ways, okay? That doesn't make what they're doing okay, not at all, but it's important for us to understand this. People who do drugs, for example, people who have adulterous affairs, people who steal or lie or whatever they do, why do they do those things? What are they looking for in those actions, they're looking for things which are actually good. They're looking for joy, happiness, escape from suffering in the world, maybe through, through drugs or abusing uh, substances. They're looking for companionship. They're looking for acceptance, affirmation, security. Those are all good things. So what's the problem? The problem is they're looking for those things in the wrong places, in ways that hurt themselves, in ways that hurt other people, and in ways which will fail them and leave them ultimately miserable and probably destroy them. Now here's the point. 
All of us desire happiness. But many times we look for happiness in all the wrong places. So the question is, what is the right place? What is the source of this deep-rooted happiness which will not leave us empty that is bigger than our momentary circumstances? And for the answer to that question, we turn to the Apostle Paul here in his letter to the Philippians because in him we see something incredible. We see a man who, in spite of his circumstances, is overflowing with joy. The circumstances of his life were not good. They were bad. His future is uncertain. His living conditions are terrible. He has every reason to be frustrated and angry and depressed. And yet, what characterizes this letter, what characterizes his heart, is a deep-rooted sense of happiness. A happiness that's bigger than all of those things. So the question is, what was the thing that Paul had and how can we get it to? What was the thing that Paul had, first of all, which enabled him to be joyful in spite of his circumstances? Let's read the first two verses of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Jesus Christ who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul had. He had the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was the source of his joy. Now what is joy? Let's define it. Joy, the dictionary defines joy as an intense feeling of happiness. The Bible uses this word a lot. It says in, in Psalm 33 verse 12, Oh how happy is the nation whose God is Yahweh. In Psalm 32 verse 1, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is, co is covered. You know, sometimes you'll hear Christians say, preachers say, God doesn't care about your happiness. God cares about your holiness. Anybody ever heard that one before? Now, it's, it's what we call a false dichotomy, right? It's like saying you have to choose one or the other. It can't be both. It's either going to be your happiness or your holiness, and God cares about your holiness and not your happiness. It's a false dichotomy. You're setting two things against each other which are not actually at odds with each other. See, here's what the Bible would say. God very much cares about your happiness. God created you for happiness. That's the desire. He put that desire for happiness. It's hardwired into you. But the only place where you will truly find happiness is when your heart uh, finds its desires in him. See, that's why many people spend their life frustrated. They feel like they're chasing after the wind, always pursuing something but never able to take hold of it, always pursuing happiness in a myriad of different ways but never really taking hold of that lasting joy which their hearts desire. Augustine said this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The other thing the Bible teaches is not only that God cares about our happiness, but here's the other thing, that holiness leads to happiness. Holiness leads to happiness, and sin causes destruction, it causes pain, it causes sorrow, but holiness leads to happiness. And so we can say that God very much does care about your holiness, and why? Because he loves you and he wants you to be happy, and he has provided a way through Jesus for you to experience true happiness that unquenchable joy which your heart desires. So Paul begins this letter by stating his name. Now we generally sign our names at the end of a letter nowadays, but they used scrolls in those days, and so you'd write your name at the top so you didn't have to unroll the scroll the entire way to find out it was just junk mail and throw it away. So they said, okay, it's from Paul, 
I guess I'll keep on reading, right? But not only Paul, but also Timothy. Now, you might remember Timothy from our previous study in Acts. Timothy was Paul's protege. He was a man who became a Christian as a, as a young man in Paul's ministry, and then he later joined Paul on some of his missionary journeys. Paul refers to Timothy as his son in the faith. Timothy had become a Christian in, in one of the churches which Paul started on his first missionary journey. On the second missionary journey, Timothy joined Paul and was a partner with him in ministry. And after the third missionary journey, Paul appointed Timothy to be the pastor of the church that he started in Ephesus, which was the largest and most influential of all the churches he started during his years as a missionary. And now, Paul is in Rome under arrest, and it would seem that Timothy has now come to visit him. This letter is written to the church in Philippi. This is a church which Paul started on his second missionary journey when Timothy was with him. And this was about 10 years ago that he started the church. 10 years later now, Paul is writing them from jail in Rome. It, this was the first Christian church on the European continent, by the way. Now, why did Paul write this letter? One of the main reasons was to encourage the Philippians in their faith. It was to let them know that he's okay you see, the church in Philippi, they knew about Paul's predicament. They knew that he was in jail. They knew that he was in pain. They knew that he might even be facing execution and death. But Paul is writing them in this letter so they would know that in spite of all these things that are happening to him, these things did not destroy him. These things did not take away from the source of his joy. You see, that he, he would say, they can take away my freedom. They can even take away my life. But they can never take away my joy because my joy is found in the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's something which nobody can take away from me. If anything, these difficulties have only caused him to celebrate that hope all the more. Paul's purpose in writing this letter is to show these people the reasons for his indestructible joy. And what that joy produces in a person's life because he wants them to have that joy as well. Now what this means for you and me practically, if we have this joy, it means this, that what happens to you doesn't have to control you. What happens to you doesn't have to control you. It, even when things are going bad, you can still be doing good if you have a source of joy which is bigger than your circumstances. You know, there's an interesting place in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And most of you like Habakkuk. Wow, that's way out there, right? Uh, interesting place, Habakkuk chapter 3, where it says this, even though the fig tree has no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vine, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the field and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. Notice what he says there several times. He says, even though, yet I will. Even though, I will. I want you to say that to yourself even though I will. Even though the fig tree has no blossoms, even though there's no grapes on the vines, even though the cattle barns are empty, in an agrarian society, guess what? That's how you make your money. That's how you feed your family. What he's describing here is a complete economic crisis. Now put this in terms of your life. Even though my business is failing, even though I got laid off, even though my car broke down and my dog died and I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet, even though this or that happened to me, I will. Even though I will. Even though this happened to me, I will rejoice. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. Say that to yourself. Even though 
I will. Now, why is Habakkuk able to rejoice even though these bad things are happening? Here's why. Because he has something, which he refers to at the very end of that passage, a source of joy which is outside of his circumstances, that he has been loved, that he has been redeemed, he has been saved by God. And even if these bad things happen, if nothing grows, if all the animals die, that doesn't change the reason that he has, the deep-seated reason he has for rejoicing. Now look again at these first uh, verses of Philippians. In this first verse, we see two things that the gospel did for Paul and that the gospel does for everyone who embraces it. First of all, the gospel made Paul a slave. Secondly, the gospel made Paul a saint, a slave and a saint. Now, some of you might hear that first one and say, the gospel made him a slave? That doesn't sound good at all. Like, I don't want to be a slave. Well, sorry, but I have news for you. It's too late. No matter what, you are a slave. Every person is a slave, no matter what you do. Every person is a slave. The question is, what will you be a slave to? You see, the Bible says this, that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Do you know what percentage of people have committed sin? 100% of people, everybody, me and you included. And so by definition, that's our condition. We are slaves to sin. And, And all people feel this. They express it in different ways. You know, in these common sayings that you hear people say. You hear people say like things like, hey, nobody's perfect. Or I'm really just not the man or woman that I want to be. I'm not always the mom or the dad that I know that I should be. I'm not always the friend that I know that I should be. See, what are are they expressing? What they're expressing is this, that they know the good that they should do, but yet they fail to do it, even though they know it. You see, there's something within us which makes us our own worst enemies, and we know it. And guess what that means? It means that we are slaves to sin. But what the gospel does for us, what the gospel does for a person is it gives us the opportunity to be be set free from bondage to sin by becoming slaves to sin to Jesus Christ. Now again, you're still like, that word is just so bad, right? Like slave. The actual word here is the Greek word doulos, which means bondservant. Now what is a bondservant? A bondservant is a slave by choice. It's someone who says, I see how good you are, I see how benevolent you are, and I want you to be my master, and I want to be your servant. See, to come to Jesus Christ and ask him to be Lord of your life is to become a slave of his by choice a slave in the sense that your life no longer belongs to you that your life belongs wholly to him that you're not your own that your life is not at your own disposal you are completely at his disposal to do whatever he asks but also understand this to be a slave of christ is to be a prince To be a slave of Christ is to be a prince. It is better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to live at large like a rapper in in a world where you're a slave to sin. You see, the gospel set Paul free from bondage to sin and bondage to vanity so that he could become a servant of Jesus Christ. To be a slave to sin is to live a life of vanity. It is to live an existence which has no meaning, with no purpose, no direction. To be a servant of Christ, though, is to be part of the mission of what God is doing in this world. And that is a source of joy. Let me explain. Mission is an absolute requirement for joy. If you want to have joy, you have to have a mission that is bigger than yourself. You see, a lot of people are miserable because they live for nothing more than themselves. 
Their only mission in life is their own self-fulfillment, their own self-promotion. And let me tell you what, that is a surefire recipe for a small and miserable life. To be a bondservant of Jesus Christ is to be a person who has joined him on his mission. You have offered yourself to serve him in any way that he would see fit to use you. And that gives you joy. Because you're free. You're free from bondage to sin and vanity and because you have been welcomed into the household of God and invited to participate in his mission. The other thing that the gospel did for Paul, not only did it make him a slave to Christ, but it made him a saint. A saint is what? A saint is a righteous person. A person whose destiny is bound up with God in heaven. And that is what the death and the resurrection of Jesus has done for us. He died for us in our place, paying the penalty for our sins so that God, through him, could declare us righteous. Our destiny is with God in heaven. We who are sinners in Christ, we become saints. This is what Paul had. This is what he had that enabled him to have joy in spite of his circumstances. It was the gospel. It was the hope of the gospel that because of what Jesus had done for him, he had a future destiny. He was a servant of Christ and he was a saint. So the second question is this. How can we have it too? And there are three things I'd like to show you in the next couple of verses. How we can have it too. The same joy that Paul is talking about here. And there's three points here. Number one. First things first. Number two, make number one, number three. And number three, keep your eyes on the prize. So three things. First things first, making number one, number three. And number three is eyes on the prize. Okay, first things first. In verse two, Paul greets the Philippians by saying his common greeting, which is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a common greeting that Paul uses in many of his letters, grace and peace. And it's interesting for a few reasons. First of all, it's a combination of the Jewish greeting, shalom, peace, with the Greek greeting, charis, which means grace. So he's combining the two. Grace and peace, though, Paul used this several times in his letters. They're kind of the Siamese twins of the New Testament. They're always connected. And, and you also notice that they're always in this order. Grace first and then peace. It's never the other way around. And here's why. Because grace always comes first. It's important for us to realize this because, see, peace is what everybody is looking for. In fact, the Hebrew idea of shalom, of peace, which we translate peace, it means actually more than how we tend to think of peace. It means more than just the absence of conflict. The Hebrew idea of shalom is something which would better be translated wholeness or harmony. It's the sense that everything in the world is as it should be. Everything is right. The Bible tells us that the whole created world is groaning for, is longing for things to be the way that they should be, the way that they are meant to be. We ourselves, we long for peace. We long for inner peace. We long for peace with God. But you cannot experience the peace that you want until you first receive the grace that you need. See, grace always comes first. Peace is the outcome of salvation, but grace is the means of salvation. Grace is unmerited favor. It's an acronym for you, acronym lovers. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is a God who so loved the world that rather than just letting you perish and be lost, he sent his son to die in your place. How great the love of the Father that he has sent his son to us that we can be called sons and daughters of God. 
Jesus died so that you can live. That's the gospel. God offers that to you. His grace so that you can be forgiven and made whole and go to heaven. And if you receive that grace, you can be forgiven. First things first. If you want to know peace, you have to receive his grace. If you want to have that joy which is bigger than your circumstances, bigger than any circumstance life could ever throw at you, the first thing to do is this. Receive his grace. Embrace the gospel. Put your faith, put your trust in Jesus and what he did for you in his death and his resurrection. Receive the grace of God to you. That's the first. The second point here is this. The second thing we see in this text is making number one, number three. Let's read this prayer that Paul prays, and then we'll explain. Verse three. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, because um, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is Paul's prayer for the Philippian believers. Now think about this. Here's Paul. He's in jail. He's in a perilous situation. But instead of saying, guys, I really need you to pray for me, what he says, he says, guys, I want you to know that I've been praying for you. And every time I pray for you, it brings me so much joy. Isn't that interesting? One of the reasons why Paul had so much joy in spite of his circumstances was because he had made number one, number three. What do I mean by that? Well, you know the old saying, you got to look out for number one. Who's number one when you're talking about that? It's yourself. You're number one. But if you want to experience the kind of joy that we're talking about, the kind of joy that Paul had, you've got to do what Paul did and make yourself, make number one, number three. And maybe you wonder, well, then who's number two? Well, I'll explain that. Instead of being number one in his life, Jesus became number one in Paul's life. He was no longer living only to please himself. Now his life is primarily about living for Jesus and doing what Jesus called him to do. And what about number two? Well, that would be others, other people. He, he puts the concerns of other people before himself, and he slides down one more notch from number one to number two to even number three. See, the fast track to being depressed is to be focused on yourself. If you really want to experience joy in your life, you've got to make number one, number three. And then you know what your priorities look like? Because I know you guys love acronyms. I don't use a lot of them, but here's another one for you. Then your priorities look like this. Jesus, others, yourself. What does that spell? It spells joy, and that will be true in your life as well. Okay, number three, eyes on the prize. One of the ways that Paul remained joyful in spite of his circumstances was by keeping his eyes on the prize and remembering the promise of the gospel and the outcome of his faith. Two times in this prayer, he talks about the big picture. The big picture that even though he's suffering now, this light and momentary affliction is nothing to be compared with the glory which will be revealed to him. Because the day is coming and will soon be here when we will shed these earthly tents and we will enter into the life that is truly life, which lasts forever. 
Because Jesus Christ, the one who began a good work in us, he is faithful to bring it to full completion. See, this is the hope that nothing in the world can ever take away from you. It isn't affected, it isn't changed by your circumstances. Financial crisis doesn't change it. Physical suffering can't take it away from you. It can only make it stronger. They can take away your freedom. They can even take away your life. But if you have this, They can never take it away from you. This hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that because of what Jesus did for you, you have been forgiven, you've been redeemed, and the day is coming when you will see God face to face. Your faith will become sight, and he will say to you, enter into, do you know what he says? Enter into the joy of your master. That's the description of heaven. Enter into the joy of your master. Have you, uh, how can you have joy in spite of whatever circumstances this life may throw at you. You can have it like Paul did. First things first, receive the grace of God to you. Embrace the gospel because of what Jesus Christ did for you. You can have peace with God. Secondly, make number one, number three. Take yourself off the throne of your life. Make Jesus number one, make him Lord of your life, and put others before yourself. And thirdly, keep your eyes on the prize. Remember the hope and the promise of the gospel for you. I'll close with these words from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said this, My dear brothers, if anyone ought to be happy, we are those people. How boundless our privileges, how brilliant our hopes. Amen? Would you please stand with me and pray? Lord, we thank you for the privileges that we have in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have taken us from the slavery and bondage of sin and you've made us servants of you. You've welcomed us into your household. You have made us your own. And Lord, truly, we do say that. We say, let our lives be yours. We want to be servants by choice of Jesus Christ, giving you our lives and saying, here it is, as you please. Lord, we also thank you for the privilege, the hope that we have that you have made us saints. You have made us righteous in and through Christ and our future destiny is with you in heaven. Help us to keep our eyes on that prize. Help us to make ourselves not number one, but number three. Lord, would you help us also in all these things to receive your grace. Lord, in order that we might know peace, we ask that we would receive your grace. And Lord, I want to pray right now for anyone here today who would say, you know, as we're talking about this hope, as we're talking about this joy, they would admit, I don't have it. If you don't have that joy, if you've never received the grace of God to you and what Jesus did for you, if you realize today after hearing this that you've been making yourself number one and you need to make yourself number three, that you need to give Jesus the number one place in your life, I'd like to give you a chance to do that. I'm going to pray and I'd like to encourage you If that's you, to pray these words along with me right where you're at silently. Lord, I thank you for what you did for me. I thank you for sending Jesus for me, that you love me that much, that you wouldn't just leave me in my sin. You wouldn't just leave me to be lost forever, Lord, but thank you that you sent Jesus for me. Thank you for that grace. And I receive that grace, that it's by what you did for me, not by what I do for you, that I'll be saved. So I receive that grace. I receive that forgiveness today. That it's not just true, but it's true for me. And Lord, that you have wiped away every one of my sins. That I might have a new life in you. That I might become a saint. And Lord, I pray for everyone in here today that we would receive that good news of the gospel. We would receive that hope of the gospel. 
and that we'd rejoice in it as we go, knowing that our lives are in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. From our series, The Pursuit of Happiness, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Yeah.